0: This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with Kelly Underman, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Drexel University. Kelly is the author of Feeling Medicine, How the Pelvic Exam Shapes Medical Training. The book examines power and affect in medical education, the women's health movement, and the creation of a new regime in doctor-patient relations. Stay with us. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for being on the annex. We're so happy to have you and learn more about about your work.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Dan.
0: I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, you've written a really compelling, engaging book that I do not wanna put down. It reminds me of many of my favorite books in sociology. So I'm really happy to learn more about it and share with our listeners. One of the things I wanna talk about before uh, we get into your book is actually the group that you co-founded. You're a co-founder of the Sociology of Health Professions Education Research Network. So, talk to us about you know your involvement in that group, how it came about, and why is this subfield you know once again important for sociology. You know, medical sociologists might know Boys in White, might know Bosk's uh, Forgive and Remember, might know um, The Woman in the Surgeon's Body, other books about training in medicine and in you know in surgery, maybe more particularly. But uh, why is this subfield, again, important for sociology?
1: Um, So, yeah, I am a co-founder of the Research Network. We've been active for about five years, I want to say. So it came out of my postdoc in the Department of Medical Education at at UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago, because we were noticing that a lot of folks are researching and writing and thinking about health professions education once again. This was a huge subfield. In the 1950s and 1960s, so many foundational topics in sociology came out of this subfield, right? Professions, a lot of work on symbolic interaction came out of this subfield. Uh, in the mid-80s, we had a lot of stuff on emotional socialization and the sociology of emotions, Smith and Kleinman of course, the concept of the hidden curriculum from Fred Hafferty and emotional socialization from Fred Hafferty's work, right? So it was this big subfield that really shaped sociology of health and medicine, um, but also shaped sociology as a discipline. And then, you know, some things happened in the 1970s, 1980s, and in particular, the 1990s where the topics sort of fell by the wayside, in part because sociologists were sort of drifting to other topics in medical sociology. Um, thinking about things like illness narratives, um, patient health movements, as I talk about my own work, you know, pursuing different topics to think about the sort of countervailing powers on the profession instead of the profession itself. Um, and then sociologists also sort of lost access to a lot of the health professions context that they were studying. Um, but really, since the 2000s and, and, and in the last, I think, five or 10 years, we've, we've seen a lot of return of interest to this topic. My work is part of it my team that I co-founded the research network with um, are doing a lot of really fascinating work on this topic. Um, And it has a lot to do, you know, for sociologists wondering, well, why would I care about the health professions education? What is training to be a doctor? What is training to be a nurse? What is training to be a med tech or a physician's assistant really need to tell us about um, as sociologists, and it, you know, there's a lot of themes about this sort of shift from social professions to the source of knowledge work, for example, um, a lot of topics on status and inequality, quality, um, institutions and institutional gatekeeping. And as my work sort of fits into the sociology of emotion, um, I actually have a f- piece that's forthcoming in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior that I um, a team that I co-led with Tanya Jenkins um, that sort of traces the last twenty-five years at the of the social HPE and makes the case that this is once again a really important subfield for sociologists.
0: Oh, that's awesome! So, tell us about the uh, the other. So, who were you collaborating with in in creating the the network? It's it's you, it's um, Tanya Jenkins, it's Alexandra Vinson, the and people I'm forgetting. Sorry.
1: That's okay. Yeah. So it was Tanya. Uh, Lincoln, Laura Hirschfield, who was my postdoc supervisor and still one of my close collaborators, Alexandra Vincent, who's one of my collaborators still, uh, and then one of our other key members right now is Lauren Olson. So the team of us, for the five of us, who wrote the the JHSB paper that um, Tanya and I co-led.
0: Oh, awesome! Okay, this is going to be another landmark landmark paper. You know, it, at least I hope. I hope. I, I hope so. We, we can, <laughs> yeah, we can. We're going to put it out there that this will be a landmark paper. You know there have been a history of really landmark you know papers in JHSB and and other venues that kind of serve as agenda setting vehicles. I'm thinking about Adele Clark and colleagues' work on biomedicalization. That piece was really was really central in launching a lot of work in this field. All right, well let's turn to your book. It examines the pelvic exam and tracks the history of women's health activism. So can you tell us more about this history and how things have changed? As the result of social movements led by women around this exam and around women's health more generally?
1: Sure. So I really go, I, you know, I trace the history of recent health activism around the um, pelvic exam most closely in the book. But I, I really start the story back in the 1800s with the rise of gynecology and obstetrics as a medical um, specialty. And what we we see at this time is there's there's a lot of history of exploitation. There's a lot of, in particular, racist exploitation of enslaved black women. Um, The person who gets called the father of American gynecology, uh, J. Marion Sims, right, invented what is the forerunner of the speculum that we use today out of these really brutal experiments on uh, black women and really expropriated knowledge from their bodies in these ways to invent the speculum. So a lot of people are familiar with that history. It goes back even further in Europe with the actual invention of the first bivalve speculum, um, which was invented by a midwife and then expropriated by a male gynecologist um, Mm -hmm. in order to sort of make his name. And he made his name by demonstrating the use of the speculum on sex workers who had been arrested for sort of public health violations for working in the streets. And they were sort of put on display for doctors to come and watch the use of the speculum. So it has this really exploitative, um, brutal history where bodies that have been coded as female get used in these sort of knowledge production ways for this sort of very masculine profession. And so the, the pelvic exam as we know it today really kicks off in the sort of 1940s uh, with the invention of the pap smear as a routine screening tool for um, cervical cancer. Uh, the American Cancer Society and other organizations promote the pap smear as a way to detect cervical cancer. This becomes part of you know routine um, care. But the pelvic exam also became really routine in the 1940s because 37 states actually had laws on the books that prior to getting married, you had to be examined to pass this sort of sexual health screening. And Whoa. so on one hand, yeah. So on one hand, this was about, uh, you know, public health and making sure that people were free of sexually transmitted infections before they potentially start procreating. Not the best history. Um, On the other hand, it also gets used by, you know, this growing specialty called gynecology in order to instruct women on their roles in the sort of marital relationship. So on one hand, it has this sort of like uh, heterosexual family role where it's about a male doctor teaching a woman basically about what penetrative sex is supposed to be like and the fact that she needs to just be a passive participant in this experiment. There's a lot of or in this experience. There's a lot of like, you know, Freudian stuff going on here about women's sexuality that's there. So this is where the pelvic exam really comes from. And so it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone who's ever been subjected to a pelvic exam or hears about this history. that in the 1960s, um, the women's health movement was really pushing back against this. Um, And so there were a lot of efforts for women to sort of take speculums out of the medical setting and take them to self-help clinics where women would, you know, communally view um, one another's services, would perform pelvic exams on one another as the sort of reclaiming the, this instrument that had been so oppressive to them and also reclaiming knowledge about their own bodies. Um, so this is sort of the, the 1960s. And women's health activists at this time, right, were very, very critical of medicine as an institution. It was very patriarchal. It was very dismissive of women's experiences. It was extremely sexist. Um, and so you know, women were turning to nurses, were turning to these self-help clinics to get exams instead. And so what you see start to happen is in the 19 early, late 1960s, early 1970s, you start to see some concern among medical educators that the way that we have been learning the pelvic exam um, isn't appropriate. And so prior to the invention of GTA programs, medical students were learning pelvic exams on, they would learn them on sex workers, they would learn them on cadavers, they would learn them on rubber plastic mannequins. But primarily the way they were learning, the pelvic exam was on patients. You know, it's the sort of teaching hospital model where a woman would show up for maybe even something completely unrelated, but if she was showing up with any kind of gynecological complaint, As part of getting her medical care from this teaching hospital, she would have to have medical students perform the pelvic exam on them for their education, right? So there's no benefit to her as a patient whatsoever. And there were starting to be some medical educators in the sixties and seventies who were saying, you know, this is exploitative of patients, right? Patient consent and uh, informed consent laws are starting to happen. Um, So medical educators have this on their radar. They're also thinking, you know, this isn't actually an educationally benefit for the students either, because there's no way when it's an internal exam to tell that they are palpating the correct organs. Right. That they're doing the exam correctly. It's just sort of the medical students word that they're like, oh, yeah, I I feel the uterus. I know what you're talking about. Right. They could be making that up. They can also they're also just so nervous that the patient is there um, that they're not able to really communicate freely. So medical educators started approaching women's health clinics. And the first instance of this is at Harvard um, Medical School and the Boston Women's Health Collective, the Pelvic Teaching Program. Um, Susan Bell writes about this uh, really compellingly. And so they sort of collaborated where the women were sort of the passive models and the medical faculty were teaching the exam. The women of the Pelvic Teaching Program, these feminist health activists said, you know, after doing this for a little bit, they realized how quickly this could be um, co-opted by medicine. And so they came up with their own protocol where they just wanted to teach the exam. They didn't want um, medical faculty to be involved with it. They wanted to be paid more um, and they wanted to basically keep men out of the situation. They thought men had no place in women's health care. So they wanted to open it up to anyone in the hospital who was a woman who wanted to learn this exam. Harvard Medical School said this isn't working. Um, And the program sort of fell apart. But this sort of experimental method of pairing with feminist health activists to teach the exam instead of um, exploiting patients started to sort of grow and take off. And we start to see in the 1970s at the University of Iowa and then eventually the history that I get into um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the 1980s. Right. You really see feminist health activists. Working with medical educators to redo the way that they're teaching the pelvic exams. That was a very long rambling answer. Would you like me to go back and revisit anything? Or-
0: no, I, I think that's I think that's great. I mean, there's a lot of history there. I love the connection with Susan Bell's work, who's been you know important to me, uh, and also of course she's your colleague at Drexel. So yeah. part of me wants to to ask you know what it, what is it like to write a book that has so many resonances with someone who's like literally on your faculty and is a chair of your department, which I can imagine might be, um, you know, you might think a little extra hard about those, those sections.
1: I feel like I could, talk, I could talk a little bit about that. I think she'd be, she would appreciate that. Um, you know, it was, it was writing, especially the history chapters was really interesting because Susan's office is literally next door to mine. Um, and of course, I, you know, wanted to make sure that I was getting the history right um, and and give, doing credit to her, her work on the public teaching program. Um, and so it was so wonderful to be able to share the work with her and get her sort of critiques and feedback on that. Um, and then there was one moment in the book writing process where she led me across the, the hallway and opened her sort of storage closet and showed me her sort of archive of materials back in the pelvic teaching program, and so I got my hands on one of the protocols that they had written. And as awesome. you know, somebody who does historical work, it was such a great moment to like have access to these primary materials. And so that was that was really important for the book um, and the development of that history chapter.
0: I think so many times, you know, are the people that we you know admire and whose work we we build on. They can be really generous, or they often are really generous. And, um, you know, when Monica Casper left Vanderbilt, she basically like gifted me a bunch of things, which I still have, you know, like even notes from classes that she took in, in graduate school and, and, um, just, you know, seeing her mind work through some of the projects and issues that she was thinking about and developing her project on the unborn patient was, is really fascinating. Anyway, what a great moment to be, you know, in a department with someone who is so generous and so, you know, so helpful in, in sort of continuing work on women's health activism and you know of course the boston women's health collective is like just super important in this history you did mention really briefly gta so that that stands for gynecological teaching associate mm-hmm,
1: definitely
0: and i think that that really leads to my next question in thinking about you know how did this type of work how did it develop in relationship to some of these women's health activists and the feminist movement in biomedicine but also, you know, as in critique of biomedicine and and kind of biomedical forms of of knowledge that had existed and were dominant in the in the field before before this work took place.
1: So, a GTA is a gynecological teaching associate. So, that's a person who Um, is female-bodied and they are teaching the pelvic exam to medical students where they're simultaneously serving as a live model for the medical student to practice the exam on while they're also teaching the exam. And so they're really important to medical education because they have extremely detailed knowledge about their bodies um, that most folks who would get pelvic exams would not have. And then remind me of the question.
0: Well, I was just, you know, I really want to I guess I wanted to have you talk about a little bit about about the Goldman Center in Chicago particularly as a as a site for women's health activism okay. and then GTA programs in the schools that you studied kind of as a way to get get into the question of you know who are GTAs how did this um this occupation you know develop and then I'm also just you know, fascinated as someone who teaches medical sociology about the way that knowledge about bodies and particularly female body people, women's bodies is often obscured, right? I mean, we have so much knowledge of male anatomy, right? Because that's sort of the standard patient, right? And I just showed my students uh, the film, The Dilemma of Desire, which is all about the clitoris and art projects that have been done on by Sophia Wallace who did a bunch of work on what she calls clitoracy. And just the lack of knowledge that many people have about their own own reproductive anatomy and their own bodies is, is kind of astounding, actually. Yeah. You know, a bunch of professions who are, the profession of medicine is extremely specialized and their knowledge is, is available. But you know, as you say, most female body people who get pelvic exams don't really understand quite a bit about what's going on in their own anatomy.
1: There's also just such a legacy from sort of Freudian ideas about female masochism, where, you know, to this day we have such poor um, medical knowledge around conditions like endometriosis, and people don't get diagnosed with these conditions because there's this assumption that you ha- if you have uh, this type of reproductive anatomy, like you're just supposed to be in pain. That's just the way it is. And so, you know, people don't get essential reproductive health care because of these assumptions that date back you know, decades and hundreds of years about what it means to be a woman and to inhabit a body that has been coded as female. So let me talk about the Emma Goldman Center. So in Chicago, which was one of the places that I studied most intensively on how this GTA program evolved. Um, so the GTA program at the University of Illinois at Chicago is one of the first and most well-documented GTA programs to make it into medical education and to really be absorbed and, you um, co-opted by the medical school for teaching medical students so and it, and it's a really interesting and complicated history because it's about uh, the women's health movement in the sense that it's about these self-help clinics that feminist activists are creating but it's also about women in medicine and feminist health activism within medicine itself um, because you know in the 1970s you see women go from being about 20 percent of medical students to by the 80s, they're about 50 percent of medical students. So there's this huge uh, explosion of women in medicine and women who are informed by the feminist health movement. Right. Are coming into medical schools, seeing how the pelvic exam and seeing how, you know, stuff about female health care, reproductive health care is being um, taught and are just horrified and are pushing back on it. And so it's this sort of very uncomplicated, entangled history in Chicago where you had some feminist health clinics, which wanted absolutely nothing to do with the institution of medicine. They thought that it was sexist, it was racist, it was homophobic, it was beyond reform, you know, or or conversely, you know, hand in hand, they would also be focusing on larger structural issues like for profit health care access to healthcare, um, medical sexism, right? These big structural issues. um, And that would be the focus of their work. You know, Alondra Nelson talks about this a little bit in uh, Body and Soul about the Black Panther Health Clinics, right? They were focused on medical racism. They were focused on capitalism as this um, really corruptive force in medicine. um, And, you know, did sort of similar things, but because of their demands, um, couldn't be absorbed or co-opted by medicine as easily. So then you have these feminist health clinics like the Emma Goldman Clinic, which becomes the Chicago Women's Health Clinic, which, you know, they're working with women physicians, women medical students. They're a little bit more amenable to the idea that maybe they can work within the institution to create change. Um, and so you have a, and a lot of the early GTAs that I studied in Chicago also came from Planned Parenthood. Right. So it's a, it's a little bit more of a like, you know, we can reform medicine by focusing on. The physician-patient interaction or the clinical encounter as a site of our intervention. In Chicago, what you see happen at UIC is you see a group of women medical students approach this feminist health clinic and say, here's some money. Can you actually teach us how to do this exam correctly? And so the students raised money. They went to them. the clinic itself. The feminist activists at the clinic taught the pelvic exam to them. And it was so successful that the students took this information back to the medical school and said, you know, this is helping us. Um, the, the student that I uh, interview in the book was doing a MPH, a master's in public health at the time, and was able to sort of do a like comparison of students who went through the feminist inspired program versus the standard program and prove that They were coming out more confident. They knew where the anatomy was a lot better, right? They were having better outcomes. And so the medical school got involved, got really interested and sort of moved the women into the the medical school itself and uh, worked with this uh, physician named Charles R.B. Beckman, who is one of the only people in the book who's, I have permission to use their legal name because he was publishing a lot on this and you can go and read what he was publishing. And he really viewed the women's involvement in the feminist health movement as um, a plus for creating these programs, right? They're comfortable with their bodies, they're comfortable with teaching, they're comfortable talking about reproduction and sexuality to strangers, and they're willing to, but they're also the kind of feminist who's willing to work within the institution to affect change. Um, and so he works with these women, they just basically do the pelvic exam over and over and over again to learn what kind of language they should be using and what kind of language they shouldn't be using to learn Things about, you know, how do you insert a speculum in a way that actually works with the anatomy of the body as opposed to sort of like, you know, causing pain to the patient. How do you perform a bimanual exam, which is using two hands to examine the internal organs in such a way that, you know, you can perform a comfortable exam on the patient, find what you need to find and then, you know, move on. Um, and he was also really interested in the sort of doctor patient relationship more broadly. Right. He talked to these feminist health activists about why they hated gynecologists so much. Right. Like, why don't you want to go see a doctor? Um, why are you going to these self-help clinics instead? Why are you seeing nurse practitioners for your care instead? And so, you know, it was very important to him to 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 fix what was driving women away from the institution of medicine by sort of making gynecologists into more empathetic, more friendly, more caring um, medical providers. And so, you know, by the end of the 80s, this program becomes firmly institutionalized in the school. Medical schools across the country start using this model and to the point where, you know, by the end of the 80s, early 90s, about 90 percent of medical schools in the United States and Canada were using GTAs. And it's still, depending on the study, it's between 72 and 90 percent of medical schools use
0: GTAs. So this is a practice that I, before encountering your book and your project, I was unaware of as someone who is male-bodied. So I don't don't get the same kind of exams as, as uh, most female-bodied people do. I'm interested in not only the practice-oriented parts in terms of the technical work of, of the exam, but how, how are GTAs helping medical students you know become better doctors on the caring aspects of this i mean part of feminist work is often you know associated with care theory uh just you know sort of a, a focus on ways that we that uh, providers or professionals or just every everyday people can be more more conscientious uh, more responsive to the needs of others you know and recognizing the care obligations that folks have and also the sort of the power of being a caring professional and actually getting better medicine done. So how how are those GTAs working on, on the more intimate, emotional, uh, interactive components of the exam that aren't about palpating a particular organ?
1: Sure. Yeah. So two of the other histories that I, I trace in the book um, that really in, influence how the pelvic exam is practiced today is, is on one hand the move in medical education to standardized communication skills. And that's really where you see simulated patients like GTAs coming out of, is that medical educators were really concerned that when medical students were learning their communication skills, their bedside manner skills, how to have a relationship with their patient, uh, but also their medical knowledge from clinic patients. They're seeing, you know, everybody's seeing a different person every single day. There's no standardization, right? So in the 70s and 80s, you really see this intensive push in medical education towards the standardization of medical knowledge and towards the standardization of communication skills and examining uh, medical students on clinical communication skills, rather than just assuming that they would learn to bedside manner along the way, they're being tested on their bedside manner now. And the other history that I trace is the history of, the patient, of patient consumerism, right? Um, which is the shifting orientation between patients um, and healthcare providers to view health as a commodity that you can purchase like anything else. And the, you know to the rise of things like health grades, where physicians and other medical providers are getting rated on patient satisfaction as part of the Affordable Care Act, right? You get reimbursement as a public hospital. You have to have a certain score on your patient satisfaction. Like Yelp. Yeah, like Yelp for doctors. And then it's also tied to both private insurance reimbursement, and public insurance reimbursement. So, right, uh, where where all of this is going is this really sets the stage for, in the 90s, physicians to start rethinking this idea of clinical empathy, um, which comes from uh, Judy Halpern's work. Clinical empathy becomes important in the 1990s and the early 2000s and is now the sort of like regime of the way in which physicians are taught to or relate to patients as part of this patient consumerism movement. Um, And it really gets sort of enfolded into medicine in this standardization of communication skills. So medical students today, if you take the licensing exam, the United States Medical Licensing Exam, you get tested on your empathetic communication skills. So what GTAs do is um, they're part of this sort of broader move towards standardizing and incorporating empathy as this very sort of in clinical empathy as this intensive and intentional socialization of medical students. And to you know, throw back to earlier in the interview, I have a paper with my colleague Alexandra Vinson in which we sort of argue that clinical empathy is emotional labor, right? Because it can be taught as a discrete set of observable skills. Um, And so, you know, in the GTA, especially the history of the GTA program, you see empathy get unfolded in care. In particular, I talk about, you know, care getting unfolded into the pelvic exam. It starts with these sort of feminist principles of like caring for your patient and centering the patient um, and, you know, being concerned about the patient. And it gets unfolded into the pelvic exam as this sort of like you know, taking care of students because otherwise they're going to be extremely anxious. It gets enfolded as these standardized technologies for speaking to patients. Right. So language becomes a really big deal in GTA um, sessions and in these standardized tests of communication skills. So, for example, I talk about in the book, right, GTAs teach medical students. You don't say you're going to stick your fingers in somebody. Right. You're going to say, I'm going to insert my fingers now. Or when you go to make the contact to do the pelvic exam, right? You don't just make contact because that's going to startle the patient. You touch them. It's called neutral touch. You touch them on the back of the knee with the back of the hand and then move on to the genital exam, right? So it's all these things that came out of feminist practices of care that are now students are getting tested on in these sort of standardized ways. And it's part of the exams, you know, the actual manual technical exam skills, right? Touching and then touching, um, but it's also about ta- talking to the patient. Right. And learning these like stock phrases that convey empathy, like maintaining eye contact with the patient, naming the emotion to the patient. It sounds like you're scared right now or it sounds like you're very anxious or I'm hearing that you're very worried. Um, let's talk about that. Right. So like learning these ways to talk to patients about um, emotion in sort of standardized ways. So. Yeah, the GTA program, it really is about sort of teaching medical students this way of relating to patients that is this clinical empathy model. Right. Um, That is this patient centered model. But because it's been co-opted by medicine, it's it's really about, as I argue in the book, upholding medical authority. Right. Making physicians into trustworthy healthcare providers, right? To be trusting people for patients who maybe are a little bit hesitant about this exam or about healthcare reinforces medical authority because, you know, one, it's allowing physicians to get access to both bodies and information about their patients that they wouldn't know otherwise. And also it's, we know so much now about, um, you know i was reading uh, gilles's recent book about expertise right and how much expertise is about trust right so it's building this trusting relationship so that the patient stays caught in this sort of nexus of medical power
0: this is it's fascinating that there's a whole set of like protocols and you know essentially checklists and scoring metrics for something that is really a fundamentally human interactive you know we want to think that our encounters that we have with healthcare providers are actually, you know, motivated by some kind of intrinsic concern for our health status or our, our needs. And But what you're saying is that students are undergoing an emotional socialization and also a testing process that really forms them in standardized ways, as if, you know, all patients are going to respond the same way to the same kind of phrases. And you wouldn't have to actually have a you know, more human conversation with, with your patient, um, with the person that you're providing care for. It is another, you know, great example of, you know, as you're saying, the co optation of a feminist model of care and, you know, slotting it into a pre existing kind of framework of evaluation, you know, computation, quantification, and ranking, right? Because medical students are in some ways in in competition with each other, as well as their co-learners, right? Because they're real, they're real stakes to finishing this exam. And then of course, to moving on in, in one's training. And so if you don't make the top you know, X percent of your class, it's difficult for you mm-hmm. to get the kind of residency or advanced training or even job that you're looking for uh, at, at the end of your, in medical school. So we've, we've opened up the downside, <laughs> potential downside anyway, of this, uh, of bringing um, a feminist care ethic-inspired yeah. practice into a medical school context and not actually fulfilling kind of the promise of reorienting healthcare for women and for others like in a more you know, just and responsive way.
1: You know, and one of the sort of stories that I tell throughout the book that I revisit at the end of the book is the this idea that, you know, the, this history, right? So the, the type of feminist who was willing to work with medical educators in the 1980s, right? Tended to be white, middle class, well educated women. Um, some of the original GTAs in Kretschmar's work in Iowa in the '70s were in behavioral sciences PhD programs, right? So, so well educated white women, um, and so the, I, I talk about this in the book that this sort of model of patient centered communication that becomes the standard and gets taught in medical education and that gets medical students get tested on aligns with what Janet Shim calls cultural health capital of middle-class white women, right? So all of these ways in which uh, medical students are being trained to interact with patients is about the sort of cultivation of forms of cultural health capital that align with white middle-class values, basically. And so, you know, that's something that I am critical of and very concerned about in the book is, you know, are we training medical students to, yes, I think it's great that we're training medical students to be empathetic and to embody patient-centered values. I am concerned about the sort of unmarked category of patient is actually a white middle class person. And so these technologies, these techniques that they're learning aren't equipping them to actually engage empathetically with a range of patients that they'll actually encounter in the clinic. And I'm also concerned that because this is the sort of model that medical students are getting trained in and that this form of cultural health capital is very white and middle class, um, that also leaves out medical students who are underrepresented in medicine, students of color, students who, you know, English isn't their first language, students who um, come from working class or poor backgrounds, right? They they often, you know, we've, we've seen evidence that these students struggle with these sort of standardized communication skill tests because, Again, it's a white middle class model. That's not how everyone relates to everyone else. Um, and so it it may, I don't have the empirical evidence at this moment to back this up, but I think we see anecdotally that this is disadvantaging underrepresented students in medicine.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that I did, I was curious about is the diversity of medical students who are who are training with GTAs. And then of course the workforce of GTAs themselves. Can you talk about who these workers are and you know, how are they recruited these days?
1: Yeah. So GTAs um, primarily um, in, you know, I, I, I focused primarily on three medical schools in Chicago um, in the book. But I interviewed, because GTAs are such a small labor pool, I interviewed GTAs across the country. And it tends to be, so the, the types of people who become GTAs, there's sort of like two categories of people. There are um, people who are actors who are trying to make a career in stage and film and things like that. And they also do um, standardized patient work, which is, you know, a broader category of playing a patient for the purposes of evaluating students. Um, and that's how they get into it as they start by working as standardized patients. And then they realize they could make more money if they worked as a GTA as well. So they'll pick that up and it supplements their sort of acting money because it's, it's a very flexible career. Then you have this other category of people who are sort of more inclined to feminist health activism. Um, A lot of the original GTAs that I interviewed in in Chicago came up through Planned Parenthood. Right. So they were doing this sort of like, you know, reproductive justice work that wasn't super well paying um, and supplementing their income and also sort of, you know, having a vocation, if we can call it that, for training medical students and improving reproductive health care more broadly. So they then do this work. So it's a very flexible form of work. It's, you know, I know there's a lot of sociology of gig economy work, and I, I think uh, I don't do this in the book, but I would love to see somebody sort of frame standardized patients and GTAs in this sort of like gig economy idea, because that's basically what they are. Right. They, they you know, will work a couple of hours in what GTAs call a pelvic exam season. And I'm using air quotes. Um, which is, you know, when the medical school have this stuff in their curriculum. So it tends to be the fall and the spring. So they'll work a ton then, and then they won't work. So it's not really a form of work that you can do as your full-time job, um, but it's a really good supplemental kind of work. Um, And so, you know, in Chicago, they tend to be, uh, GTAs tend to be very similar to the original GTAs, which they tend to be white. They tend to be either from a working class background and then encounter GTA work through sort of an educational, upward educational trajectory, or they come from a middle class background, also educated. That's not universally true, but that tends to be the case. And most of the GTAs, I should say this as well, most of the GTAs that I interviewed are women. Um, there's no requirement that you have to be a woman to work as a GTA. And in fact, there are GTA programs where they Um, specifically hire non-binary folks and men to teach the pelvic exam to sort of disrupt this heteronormative idea that woman equals uterus, vagina, and ovaries. Um, But in Chicago, there's this sort of very close alliance between this sort of heteronormative ideas about gender in the body and GTA programs. So everyone I interviewed in Chicago was a woman. um, And I interviewed, I want to say two GTAs in the book who um, weren't living as their authentic selves yet when they were doing the GTA work, and then later after they quit, um, transitioned and started living either um, non-binary or as the men that they actually are.
0: That's so interesting, and a, like a welcome, at least in some places, a, a welcome, as you say, disruption to the heteronormative and you know gender binary that we so fall, many of us fall back on. Well, the book is is striking because there's a speculum right on the cover. And that's not a typical illustration for sociology uh, sociology books, which is why it in one way is awesome. Let's step back a little bit. Like, So why focus on the pelvic exam? Yeah. Why is this exam so important for medical trainees? Uh, why is it so, I mean, this is a special exam that people talk about in medical school. They They have anxiety around it. And then of course, it's a very, it's an exam of a, a part of the anatomy that's associated with sexual intimacy, right? And so uh, tell us about why you, know, you chose the pelvic exam as a site to, to explore uh, all these issues of professionalism and women's health activism and, and um, affect and emotion. Why is the pelvic exam uh, your focus?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, right, the pelvic exam, is a very niche sort of thing. Most um, practicing physicians don't perform pelvic exams. It's not really a routine part of medical care. Um, And as the sort of technology improves around HPV testing and um, vaccination and HPV typing, right, the yearly pelvic exam isn't a thing anymore. For most folks, after a certain age, you get it every five years instead. Right. So it's not a very common sort of exam but it's such a foundational, I argue in the book that it's such a foundational exam because it gets at all of these questions about what does it mean to be a good doctor, right? What is professional practice? How is emotion part of professional practice? How are medical students being socialized in today's climate, right? And I I trace this sort of history of this intensive and intentional socialization around emotion. It used to be that you would just you know, Renee Fox's idea of detached concern, you would learn to care about patients in general, but you wouldn't care about them specifically. Um, And so I really see the pelvic exam as this sort of window in understanding emotion and medical training. Um, And, you know, and as you said, right, like a lot of all of the students I interviewed were nervous about this exam, either because, you know, they were super familiar with the anatomy and had never had it before um, and didn't have the kind of anatomy that would require a pelvic exam. And so they're anxious about it for that reason, or they're anxious about it because they've had pelvic exams. They've had bad pelvic exams. They know that they can be really unpleasant. And so they're anxious, right? So the pelvic exam in medical school is often the first and most invasive exam that medical students learn. So it's sort of this Really fascinating sociological window into all of these questions about professional socialization, about emotion, about the physician-patient relationship, medical power, knowledge, and the body. And so, I just found it to be, you know, even though it's sort of an exceptional case, it's it's these are exceptional cases are fascinating for teaching us about social patterns and social structures.
0: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree that we need more analysis of cases that seem unusual but actually the closer you get to them this is what i found yeah. in my own work the closer you get to something that seems strange the more connections you find with other you know other institutions other practices other professional communities and actually you know by focusing on one thing you open up a whole sort of set of viewpoints or really understandings of diverse like set of a set of practices that have resonances across you know, across context, which is what is so, so interesting about this book. I mean, I was just reflecting on, you, you were talking about um, detached concern and, you know, as professors, you and I are in different institutions, but there is, I think like it's kind of a, an emotional or, or even like, yeah, sort of emotional socialization or some kind of training that you go through when you transition from graduate student who's not teaching to a teaching role, you know how concerned are you going to be with your students? You know how do you show them that you, you know, maybe you care about them as individuals, but that you also are maintaining a level of professional, you know, objectivity or professional uh, relation, right? Even if they're going to tell you about their their breakup or their health condition or a death in the family or I mean, you know, this is just stuff that's happened, you know, in the last last year or, or less, you know, in my own in my own experience as a as a faculty member. So just thinking about how different workplace environments have emotion, you know, what feeling rules, right? And emotional and affective training is really is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk more about affect. So your book does focus a lot on on affect, which you distinguish from Um, Can
1: I I say something? Sorry to interrupt. Can I say something about that that connection? Sure. Yeah. I I think the last year of all of us teaching online through COVID has really revealed the ways in which I think being a professor is similar to GTA work in some ways or similar to being a physician in some ways. First and foremost, you have this like incursion of what Ivo Luz calls emotional capitalism, which is this sort of like management psychology introduction of tools to, you know, make people feel like you care about them, even as you're towing the company line. And then on the other hand, right, the sort of like absolute disappearance of any sort of supportive social structures to take care of our students in crisis, for physicians to take care of their patients. Um, You know, Latonya Trotter writes about this so compellingly in her study of nurse practitioners, right, that like there is no social safety net, there is no social we, we have no social support. So it's all up to the individual workers. And so I think professors and physicians have that in common that we, you know, have to find ways to care about the people that are in our, under, you know, our authority without having any sort of institutional resources to actually do that kind of stuff. And so I think the burnout conversation that we see in healthcare is very similar to the burnout conversation we're starting to have as professors, right? Like one, you know, doing this sort of emotional labor is exhausting and two doing it in isolation of having any sort of support either for ourselves you know in terms of mental health care or having structure to take care of our students yeah i just wanted to say that
0: yeah i think you know we're recording this in uh on april 20th of 2021 and and those of us who have been pandemic teaching mode ever since you know just over a year now many of us are hitting hitting a wall our students are hitting are hitting a wall or have hit a wall I feel like we actually passed through several walls, you know, it's sort of a recurring, it's a recurring uh, process of meeting one's limits and then either collapsing in exhaustion or somehow finding a way to power through into, the, into the next crisis that is often coded as sort of mental, as sort of mental health instead of as like working in the conditions that we are, are facing is just, you know, sort of beyond the capacity of a normal Reasonable person who has social needs and who has and whose life whose life is really supported by uh, and made possible through the social structures that you're that you're talking about.
1: Absolutely, and I think that you know this sort of ties into uh, my next research project, which is looking at well-being initiatives and in the health professions and thinking about how you know burnout as a concept, which was invented in the nineteen seventies to name that sort of mismatch between. Um, the caring labor that people are performing, the structural resources that they're being provided now becomes a sort of like individual thing, right? That's your responsibility to manage, um, you know, do more yoga, te- take long baths, go for a walk, as opposed to, you know, give us better working conditions. I'm I'm really struck by, um, you know, Sarah Ahmed's work on the idea of resilience and right. Resilience is naming, putting more weight on a thing to see how far you can, make it take more weight, as opposed to, you know, resilience and self-care in the sort of ultra and tradition of, like, radical critiques of capitalism.
0: Yeah, okay, that's so... Endless.
1: That's a total aside. I don't know if it'll make into it. I had to say it.
0: Yeah, no, we, we you know, with colleagues at Vanderbilt, we were doing some work on this concept called heartfulness, and our conceptualization of that is really... A way to think about the interconnectedness and the relations that support people's ability to, you know, continue their caring practice, whether they're medical students or chaplains or chaplain trainees, and and so in the in that medical in medical context particularly, but you know, the helping professions more generally have that same have that same drive or that same demand. On, I mean, you talk to pastors who are just you know, overloaded almost, you know, on the regular, right? And they just, they cannot manage alone. They can't manage the emotional labor and, you know, toll that, you know, carrying the the weight of other people's burden, so to speak, places on them. I did want to get, you know, talk a little bit about affect and how you're using affect in the book and contrasting that with emotions. And I guess now, now that we've had this conversation, I've been thinking about how Affect is this layer of experience that is not able to be sort of quantified and, and measured and ranked and, and tracked in the, same, in the same way. So can you tell us how you use affect in the book and what distinguishes it, distinguishes it from emotion? You know, how does it affect the work encounter of, between medical trainees and, and gynecological teaching associates?
1: Um, so I, I do, in the book, make the distinction between affect and emotion. And when I talk about affect, the, the definition that I use in the book is the body's capacities to feel, to sense, and to form connections um, or to relate. So affect really names this sort of pre-social, pre-linguistic, pre-cognitive felt experience um, that the bodies are able to have. Um, so affect names a pre-social pre-linguistic capacity that bodies have to form connections with one another. And so affect, I distinguish affect from emotion in that, you know, emotion is the sort of individual experience of, you know, there's a wealth of sociology literature that says that emotion is a social property. And I fully agree with that, but I use um, emotion to sort of name the sort of recognized identifiable thing an affect to name the sort of undercurrent, the felt experience that can't quite be named, can't be quantified, can't be captured in technologies of standardization. Um, It's this sort of felt experience that bodies have, um, and it's this capacity that bodies have um, to sense the world around them, um, to relate to one another, to connect to one another. So affect comes up, and and this is where affect is, is I think, You know, my training in graduate school was to think about theory as it's not right or wrong, it's useful or not useful. So the work that affect does for me in the book is it helps me name um, this process of training bodies to be more sense, right? Both training the GTA body to identify sensation that, you know, again, regular people who only get a pelvic exam once every year, once every five years would never notice, which is like, what does it feel like when somebody palpates an ovary? What does it feel like when somebody palpates my cervix? Um, That sort of sense, sensed, felt experience um, affect helps me name. Um, And the concept of affect, right, links me to this whole literature on affective labor, which, you know, emotional labor is, as Hochschild identifies it, right, feeling rules and things like that. Affective labor um, deals with these bodily capacities. And so, you know, this is a capacity of the body that can be capitalized on. You can exchange it for money. Institutions can use it as a sort of basis of creating financial capital. Um, so it's a property that can be bought and sold as a, as a commodity, basically. So that's on one hand So the way I think about affect is that sort of sensitizing of bodies. Affect also names, um, and again, I, I go back to the scholar Sarah Ahmed and her work on um, affective economies, right? It names the sort of circulation of felt um, knowledge, felt experience, felt resonances that people aren't quite consciously aware of or can't quite you know, identify as an experience that they're having. So I think about, you know, the capacity of bodies to sort of give off impressions and receive impressions from other bodies. And this is shaped by things like gender. Right. We've talked already about the sort of sexed body and the gendered body and, and, and sexuality in particular. And the anxieties that medical students have, regardless of what their training is, right? You go into a certain situation and there are affective economies that are circulating. I talk, for example, in the book about um, a GTA told me this like really fascinating story about how she was teaching a group of three medical students who were all men, and the medical stu- one of the medical students, you know, performed this perfectly professional exam, removed the speculum, stepped back, and said, next to the medical student next to him in a way that completely reminded her of gangbang pornography, right? And so it just brought up this sort of resonance of affect that sort of said, you know, you're a female body that's being passed around by men for their purposes. Um, And so affect really names those sorts of circulations, the sort of sub, I don't wanna say subconscious because sociologists hate that word, but like just outside of awareness, currents that are happening that we can feel and identify um, and that we can capture their effects empirically, but we can't quite name what's going on there. And so that's another way that I use affect um, in the book is to help me understand what's going on there. And I don't think, you know, there's a lot of stuff there that's about emotion, but it doesn't quite name the way in which bodies are adhering to one another, sticking to one another in these sort of... um, interesting and complicated ways that nobody is intending for that to happen. It just happens because of history and society and all of these other sort of cultural things that are going on in the room.
0: That story is really striking in the book. I think she, she uh, how you have it, she compares herself to sort of passing around a textbook, this inert object, which reminds, yeah. which reminds us it's sort of like a throwback to the way that uh, the pelvic exam was done before the advent of GTAs and this more patient centric kind of model where, you know, women were draped and they were, they were lying on their backs and they were really not engaged as persons in the exam. They were more, you know, just a body on a, on a table. And so I think this also sort of connects with your, towards the end of the book, you talk about these um, recurring scandals of pelvic exams being done on Folks, when they're under anesthesia for another, usually a gynecological surgery, but you know, perhaps not always. Just the way that medical students and teaching hospitals often sort of piggyback training on onto uh, routine care that you know patients allegedly consent to when they when they sign you know when they sign their documents, right? But is not often fully explained the extent to which medical students are going to be involved in. Not their not their treatment, but you know, sort of use of the body as a, as a as a textbook, as a learning as a learning instrument.
1: Yeah, in the, in the conclusion of the book, I sort of yeah I, I talk about that those scandals, and I think I'm I'm really happy you brought them up because that's another way in which I think affect is a very useful concept because it names what's going on in those situations, right? Every I write about this in the conclusion, and every couple of years there's another scandal about the fact that in so many states, it's still perfectly legal for medical students to perform pelvic exams on unconscious patients. And again, as you said, right, they're usually, it's always happening in the context of some sort of gynecological surgery. The patient has some sort of pathology that's unique that the medical student probably won't encounter as a routine part of practice. And so The exam that they're doing is so that they can feel what that pathology feels like and look at the pathology, understand the pathology. Right. So it's like for the medical students, you know, the the medical faculty, the idea is that, right, like this is a routine part of medical practice. You have to encounter patients who have pathology and understand pathology, you know, and so on On one hand, that's going on. And then on the other hand, right, like was the patient? aware of the fact that this was going to happen to them. Medical students are often very uncomfortable that they'll just go in, they've never met the patient when the patient is conscious, they haven't introduced themselves, they're just expected to do this vaginal or internal exam. And it sort of flies in the face of all of their training up till that point, which is patient-centeredness, consent, permission, things like that. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of undercurrents that attach that sort of concern to the Me Too movement, right? And thinking about consent and sexuality and um, these sorts of things that are happening in society. And so where I think affect is a useful concept is it helps us name that sort of like disjuncture, that uncomfortableness, right? The The way in which, you know, maybe to the physician, a vagina is an or is an orifice like any other orifice the chapter the title of the conclusion I, I draw from a bioethics paper where she uses the phrase you know is the vagina different than the mouth right in theory as a physician vagina mouth they're the same thing right but to, to people who those are their bodies right they're very different things and and that's what affect names is that sort of like felt sense of these are very different things. This feels like a violation to me. It feels like you should ask me for my permission before you do this and explicitly ask me for this permission. And that sort of ties it to the you know, feminist history that I talk about in, in, in chapter one of the book, which is that um, maybe I should throw out a content notice before I say this. But um, a lot of the feminist activists who are writing about pelvic exams um, were you know, talking about these non-consensual exams that were happening as a form of rape. Um, and so that sort of history is still being threaded through, right? You're accessing these very, you know, whether or not you think that a vagina is the same thing as a mouth or not, this patient views these things as very different. And this is a very private area of their body. And th- this is an invasion to them. So taking that seriously.
0: And I'm also glad you bring up or you highlight the ways that students are often you know, pushing back on these practices, but also their own response to you know, being pressed into examining these internal structures without that kind of framing around the encounter and the trust building that would be required of uh, a typical encounter with a, a conscious, you know, talking, you know, reacting patient. It makes me wonder, you know, who is doing research on uh, on research on the students as they undergo these training processes? What's it like to have your your uh, emotional Uh, responses sort of programmed in the same way that maybe yeah in response in response to the the licensing exam and the ways that emotions and and affective and these performances right are are quantified
1: i think that's the exciting um promise of this resurgence of sociology of health professions education is you've been to some of our many conferences at Eastern Sociological Society. People are doing really exciting work, and I think work that will have really important effects um, both practically for health professions, you know, as applied sociology, but also really important for sociology as a discipline to sort of revisit some of these processes and, and, and think about how how people in different professions and occupations get crafted as emotional subjects um, under sort of late modern capitalism or whatever we're calling it, uh, especially in the era of COVID nineteen yeah. and
0: well, and the and the race and class, you know, the racialization of these yeah. and the and the class dimensions of them as well as you point out, like when the uh, imagined medical patient is is white and middle class you know how does that come up against medical schools who are trying to you know diversify their student bodies and really respond in some ways to the heightened interest among previously uninterested groups in racial justice and and of course the me too movement as you were as you were just as you were just indicating
1: yeah yeah and I think that's again where i affect has a as a concept is very promising for sociology. There's a lot of excellent work on affect in other disciplines that's making its way into sociology where it thinks about the sort of racialization. Um, Again, Sarah Ahmed talks about this in in cultural politics of emotion and thinking about affective economies, right? Like affect circulates as this way of of marking the feared outsider in very racialized ways. Jasbir Puar, right, in terrorist assemblages, uses the concept of affect to think about how a turban gets coded as this sort of affectively um, charged symbol of national identity um, or, you know, threat. Um, in a lot of ways and so one of the very first conferences I went to as a grad student was an ESS mini conference on the body and embodiment that was organized by Victoria Pitts Taylor and I saw a really fascinating panel on affect and assemblage and it's it's a lot of basically just yeah there's a lot of fascinating um, and important work that's being done on, on affect and race and the idea of how impressions and impressibility of bodies the language Kyla Schuller uses to think about how you know, despite all of this, like, uh, anti-racist efforts of institutions and anti-bias training, right, and implicit bias training, there's, there's this thing that happens at the affective level um, when black bodies encounter white bodies. It results in these very unjust uh, outcomes, right? Like, when you look at the what's going on with black women and maternal mortality rates, right? Like, only thing that describes what's happening there, right, is thinking about structural racism. And so I'm thinking about, like, what are the affects that are circulating there? Um, Oh, my God, now I can't think of her name. Tressie Cotton.
0: Yeah, Tressie McMillan Cotton.
1: Tressie McMillan Cotton, right? I have my students read her essay about the loss of her child, right, and how the provider didn't view her um, as an educated person with Um, this full emotional life. They just saw her as a black woman and, you know, made all of these assumptions and affect sort of helps us name and understand what's going on there um, where there's this sort of felt reaction that reinforces racial hierarchies and reinforces whiteness and structural racism.
0: I have my students read that too. And it's, it's usually one of their most commented upon, you know, pieces. I mean, this is totally off topic, but part of me wants to teach intro to sociology just using thick.
1: That would be so fascinating and so important because it does. It just, yeah, I have my students, I have my students read it. I actually have my students read it in intro. Um, I don't frame the whole class around it, but we, we read it in intro to talk about, because in intro, I structure it around ins- powerful institutions that people encounter because we only have 10 weeks. And so we talk about medicine and I have them read that as like a, you know, this is what the power of medical authority is doing to us still.
0: Yeah, I mean, that essay is is great, and it um, opens up so many so many doors and makes some connections really, I think, clear to students and, and invites conversation in a way that sometimes are intro texts.
1: Reading emotion back into sociology, right? Like making students feel yeah. and connect, right? That's the pa- power of sociology is to name structures and institutions and experiences, but it also, you know... All that evidence that shows when you study sociology, you develop empathy. And I think it's by having to reflect on these what it would actually feel like to be this person for whom these things
0: are happening. Yeah, I think it's totally our hidden curriculum. Yeah, and I've said that more than once. Is that sociology's hidden, hidden curriculum is empathy?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, we're running a little bit short on time, but we could talk for a lot, a lot longer. Uh, what? So you mentioned your next project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what else you're working on?
1: Yeah, so I'm really interested um, in the in the conclusion of my book. Um, I sort of play with this idea of affect as bio value, right? As this like producer of financial capital for healthcare systems. Um, and I wanted to explore that further and also connect it to some of the things that I've been seeing happen in the health profession space, which is this emergence of well being initiatives. There's a very rightful and important concern with burnout in the health professions. As I should mention, I started working on this. In 2018, I did not know what was about to, or no, 2019. So I started working on this project in 2019, not knowing what 2020 was going to bring to us um, and the health professions in particular. So I'm interested in the forms of valuation and value that are being attached to well-being in the health profession. So I'm studying um, well-being initiatives and the sort of in a similar structure to feeling medicine. I'm looking at the sort of top level knowledge regime that's informing these practices and then following the practices into the clinic to see how they're actually shaping people's lives so i'm I'm looking at well-being wellness and burnout as these sort of like finance generating categories the sort of social political and economic ways in which well-being gets valued in the health professions
0: well, Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us about your your book. It's really fascinating. Is there anything else you want to share with share with folks about the book? Anything we didn't didn't cover?
1: It's been interesting how COVID nineteen has shaped GTA work and simulated patient work in general. Um, prior to the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of interest in simulation about um, telehealth. But since the pandemic, that's really ramped up because obviously you can't have medical students in the same room as simulated patients. You can have medical students in the room together. Right. It's just it's going to be interesting to see ultimately how this reshapes medical practice. The component of the United States medical licensing exam that involves the sort of assessment of communication skills by a standardized patient was Suspended and then dropped as completely as a result of COVID nineteen. So I'm curious to see how that's going to happen. I had a major research project with Laura Hirschfield that was Stemler funded to look at um, bias in gender and race in standardized patients that was suspended thanks to COVID nineteen, and also the it's interesting. You know, I mentioned earlier the sort of gigification of these forms of work. These are folks who are like every other gig worker in the economy, right? We're out of work as a result of this. And most of them, because they're pay- the, of the way that they are paid, which is as independent contractors as opposed to employees, don't have health insurance. So I think there's this particular interesting thing that happens in the United States where the people whose job it is to be patients can't actually be patients. Um, and so COVID-19 definitely ramped all of that kind of tension up and, and I think put it in the spotlight because then they were out of work.
0: So Kelly, can people reach out to you? Like how?
1: Yes. So if anybody's interested in, you know, comments, questions, thoughts, you can find me on Twitter at Kelly Underman. My last name is U N D E R M A N. So it's Kelly Underman um, on Twitter. You can also email me Kelly.underman at Drexel.edu.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kelly. So good to see you and to learn more about about your work, which is a really great book. So Feeling Medicine, How the Pelvic Exam Shapes Medical Training. Thank you so much.